You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. second episode of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. As the election year of 1860 dawned, seasoned political operatives confidently predicted that Senator Stephen Douglas, the little giant, would become the Democratic nominee for President of the United States, and that come November, the Democrats, in a replay of 1856, would defeat the Republican Party candidate. Now remember that back in 1856, taking part in its first presidential contest, the Republican Party, which had been formed just two years before, nominated John C. Fremont for president. Fremont, an explorer and former U.S. Senator from California, lost the election to Democrat James Buchanan. But actually, few Republicans in 1856 had realistically expected to capture the White House their first time out. But all hoped their initial effort, especially with a solid showing across the North, would lay the foundation for a victory four years later in 1860. And then in 1860, the Republicans would get some unexpected help from certain radical Southern Democrats. Right, because in some ways, the fate of the 1860 presidential election was actually decided by what happened at the Democratic Convention in April. You see, as Democratic delegates convened in April 1860 in Charleston, South Carolina, Northern Democrats were still under the impression that Stephen Douglas had a lock on the party's nomination. But Southern Democrats had grown increasingly disillusioned with the little giant, especially after Douglas split with Democratic President Buchanan over the Lecompton Constitution and Buchanan's desire to see Kansas enter the Union as a slave state. And then Southern Democrats were furious over Douglas's response to Abraham Lincoln's Freeport question during their famous 1858 debates in Illinois. During the course of the debates, in his answer to Lincoln, Stephen Douglas had indicated that slavery as an institution could not exist without supporting local legislation, and so territorial residents could get around the Supreme Court's Dred Scott ruling and could still ban slavery by refusing to enact such local legislation. Long-time listeners to the podcast will know that by 1860, the Democrats' North-South alliance had been teetering on the point of collapse for years. The alliance had shown its first major crack when many Northern Democrats lost their seats in Congress during the political fallout over the Kansas-Nebraska Act. And then the fiasco over the Lecompton Constitution had caused the cracks to widen, as some Northern Democrats sided with Stephen Douglas in his bitter feud with President Buchanan. 
And so here's where it gets really interesting. Because in 1860, some radical Southern Democrats, the real fire eaters, saw the widening cracks in the Democratic Party's North-South alliance as an ideal opening to break up the party and with the party, the nation. And just in case we haven't made it clear, when we've talked about fire eaters on the podcast, that's the term used to describe those Southerners who wanted to break up the Union. Fire eaters believed the South's economy and its way of life were under continual assault by the North, and that only by seceding from the Union could the South hope to safeguard its economy and preserve its way of life, which of course meant slavery, since the South's economy and way of life rested upon the institution of slavery. Right. So, with all of that churning around in the background, most Southern Democrats went to the Democratic National Convention at Charleston in April 1860 with one overriding goal, to deny Stephen Douglas the party's nomination. But then the Fire Eaters had ambitions even beyond thwarting Stephen Douglas's presidential aspirations. As James McPherson explains in his book Battle Cry of Freedom, quote, Some Lower South Democrats even preferred a Republican president to Douglas in order to make the alternatives facing the South starkly clear, submission or secession. And they ensured this result by proceeding to cleave the Democratic Party in two. End quote. To put it plainly, there were some Southern Democrats, fire eaters such as Robert Barnwell Rhett of South Carolina and William Lowndes Yancey of Alabama, who thought the best chance for disunion and a Southern Confederacy was a Republican victory in 1860. To that end, they engineered the destruction of the Democratic Party. As I said just a moment ago, these men sought to break up their party, and with the party, the nation. So at Charleston, they manipulated the convention until a crisis was reached over the Democratic Party's platform, and when that crisis was reached, most of the delegates from the cotton states promptly walked out, as they had planned beforehand. After the seceding delegates dramatically marched out of the building, the genteel ladies of Charleston descended from the gallery where they had been watching the proceedings, and they gracefully placed a single rose on the chair of each departed delegate. Of course, that absurd, ridiculous gesture simply shows how little the fire eaters understood the tragic and terrible forces they were unleashing. Well, after the delegates from the Lower South walked out, Douglas's supporters weren't able to muster the two-thirds majority needed to nominate him. And finally, frustrated, heartsick, and exhausted, the remaining delegates adjourned and closed the fateful Charleston Convention. But before they left, the remaining delegates agreed to meet again six weeks later, in June, this time in Baltimore, and hoped that by some miracle the Democratic Party could be reunited. However, the seceding Charleston delegates sought readmission to the Baltimore meeting, still determined to pursue their strategy of breaking up the party. To add to the drama, in the meantime, Douglas supporters in some lower south states put together rival delegations to go to Baltimore. The resulting battle over the seating of delegates resulted in cotton state delegates walking out once again, and this time they were joined by most of the delegates from the upper south and even a few pro-slavery northern delegates. At Baltimore, more than a third of the total accredited delegates ended up walking out. 
and so the Douglas loyalists were foiled once again in being able to attain the two-thirds majority that was needed for an official nomination. But those remaining delegates realized that to adjourn once again without a presidential nominee would mean the certain death of the Democratic Party, and so they quickly decided that two-thirds meant two-thirds of those actually present. And so by not counting the delegates who'd walked out, a vote was finally taken, and as a result, it was declared that Stephen Douglas was the Democratic Party's nominee for the presidency. Across town on that same day, the rebellious delegates who had walked out set up their own rival convention and nominated their own candidate, John C. Breckinridge of Kentucky. Breckinridge was currently serving as vice president for James Buchanan. And so with Breckinridge's nomination, the Southerners who had entered into 1860 wanting to break up the Democratic Party made that split a political reality. The probability of a Republican victory increased even more when a compromise movement, composed mostly of disaffected moderate Democrats from border states and old-time Southern Whigs, turned its back on both Douglas and Breckinridge and nominated yet another presidential candidate, John Bell, a former U.S. Senator from Tennessee. Calling themselves the Constitutional Union Party, the movement didn't adopt a traditional platform because they wanted to avoid actually taking a stand on any of the issues that divided North and South. Instead, they simply said they recognized, quote, no political principle other than the Constitution of the country, the union of the states, and the enforcement of the laws, end quote. With the final splintering of the Democratic Party, we should probably take a minute here to point out that even the radical fire-eaters who had engineered the collapse of their party, knowing that it would most likely lead to a Republican victory and then disunion, they didn't necessarily do all that thinking it would ultimately lead to war. Right. And I hate to defend these guys in any way, but remember their goal was to break up the Democratic Party and with the party the nation, but that doesn't mean they set out to bring on a war between the North and South. In pursuing disunion, they thought the North would let the South go peacefully. In other words, they didn't expect the North to be happy about Southern states seceding from the Union, but they didn't expect the North would go to war over it. While there may have been a few fleeting thoughts about armed conflict that passed through the fire eaters' minds, but these radical Southerners had such a low opinion of Yankees, thinking them greedy and cowardly, that the fire eaters couldn't imagine the North actually fighting if it came to that. So anyway, we just wanted to stress that while they did deliberately set out in 1860 to break up the Democratic Party and then split apart the country after the Republican candidate won the election, but still these guys weren't deliberately setting out to cause the Civil War. Of course, what these guys didn't take into account was one man's determination not to accept disunion. And speaking of that man... Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. 
The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change, but it's also a story about people populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. As you might have guessed, the Republicans watched the collapse of the Democratic Party with undisguised glee. The fracturing of Democratic Party unity and the unwillingness of Bell's supporters to vote for Douglas or Breckinridge, it all worked to open the way for a Republican victory in November. But first, the Republicans would have to nominate their own candidate, and so they assembled in Chicago in May 1860 for their national convention. Many of the Republicans meeting in Chicago realized two things. One, that if they remained solidly united as a party, the White House would probably fall into their hands come November. And two, that being a newish party, their own still shaky coalition of different political groups would probably only stand solidly behind a moderate candidate. As we've mentioned before, William H. Seward of New York had long been considered the front-runner for the Republican presidential nomination in 1860, but in past political battles, Seward had earned a reputation as a radical, and now at the wigwam, his presidential ambitions were thwarted by that reputation. We should probably say that the wigwam was the nickname of the building in Chicago that had been put up to house the Republican convention. Located at Lake and Market Streets, the immense wooden building was supposedly nicknamed the Wigwam because that's where the Republican Party chiefs would meet to choose a nominee. But anyway. Besides Seward, there were several other powerful Republicans with strong reputations who were considered potential nominees. Men such as Salmon P. Chase of Ohio, Edward Bates of Missouri, and Simon Cameron of Pennsylvania but various considerations kept them from being serious contenders. And so, as the delegates boarded trains for Chicago, besides Seward's name, another name was heard again and again, increasingly touted as the only viable Republican candidate. That name, of course, was Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln's famous series of debates with Stephen Douglas in 1858 had won him wide attention. And then in 1859... His speeches throughout the Midwest on behalf of other Republican office seekers had enhanced his reputation within the party. 
And earlier in 1860, as we made clear in our last show, Lincoln had built Eastern support through his Cooper Union speech in New York City and then with the swing through New England. In Chicago at the Wigwam, the first ballot of the convention exposed Seward's weakness and revealed Lincoln's surprising strength. On that first ballot, with 233 votes needed to nominate, Seward fell 60 short at 173.5, while Abraham Lincoln polled 102. And then, as James McPherson explains, quote, The direction of the wind became clear on the second ballot as Seward gained fewer than a dozen votes, while Vermont, Pennsylvania, and scattered votes from other states, including some of Ohio's, switched to Lincoln, bringing him almost even with Seward at 181 votes. During these ballots, the wigwam was electric with excitement unprecedented in American politics. 10,000 spectators, most of them for Lincoln, jammed the galleries. The crowd communicated a palpable impulse to delegates, reinforcing the dramatic growth of Lincoln's second ballot total to convey an expression of irresistible momentum. As the third ballot began, suspense stretched nerves almost to the breaking point. Six more New England votes switched to Lincoln, along with eight from New Jersey, nine from Maryland, four more from his native Kentucky. When another 15 chase votes from Ohio went to Lincoln, the rafters literally shook with reverberation. Scores of pencils added the total before the clerk announced it. Lincoln had 231 and one-half votes. Amid the sudden silence, the Ohio chairman leaped onto his chair and announced the change of four more votes to Lincoln. End quote. As the crowd inside the wigwam and tens of thousands more gathered outside erupted in a pandemonium of joyous cheers, the Telegraph quickly spread the news of Abraham Lincoln's nomination. In his book on the 1860 election, Year of Meteors, Douglas Edgerton describes the reaction at Seward's home in Auburn, New York, and then he turns to the scene in Springfield. Quote, Certain that good news was soon to arrive, Seward and his neighbor, the Reverend John M. Austin, enjoyed the warm spring day beneath a shady tree. At length, Dr. Theodore Diamond, who had volunteered to wait at the telegraph office, came running up the street, cable in hand. It said only, Lincoln nominated on third ballot. Diamond later insisted there was no change in Seward's expression, only calm silence. Well, Seward finally remarked, Lincoln will be elected and has some of the qualities to make a good president. In Springfield, Lincoln also awaited word with a small group of friends, first in the law office he shared with William Herndon, and then at the office of the Illinois State Journal. A series of telegrams told the story of Seward's collapse, and when they learned the results of the second ballot, attorney Charles Zane saw a look of satisfaction pass quickly across Lincoln's face. Shortly thereafter, a messenger boy burst into the room and handed Lincoln a short cable. Lincoln sat staring at it for nearly three minutes before passing it to the others. It read, Mr. Lincoln, you are nominated on third ballot. Lincoln shook hands all around and headed for home. There is a lady over yonder who is deeply interested in this news, he explained. I will carry it to her. End quote. To balance the ticket, the convention nominated for vice president, Hannibal Hamlin, senator from Maine. Hamlin was a former Democrat and one of Lincoln's earliest supporters in New England, but also a friend of Seward's. 
The Republicans at the Wigwam, well, except for the disappointed diehard Seward supporters, but everyone else was certain that in Abraham Lincoln, the party had nominated its strongest candidate. But as McPherson points out, quote, few could know that they had also chosen the best man for the grim task ahead, end quote. We aren't going to spend much time talking about the 1860 campaign itself, since the most exciting parts of the story, we think, are the collapse of the Democratic Party, the nomination of Abraham Lincoln, and then finally the actual results of the election. But we will mention a couple of things about the campaign. The first is Abraham Lincoln's decision to maintain near silence in the months following his nomination. Even by the standards of the time, by which presidential candidates didn't actually campaign on their own behalf, since it was thought that would be beneath the dignity of the office. But even by those standards, Lincoln's silence in Springfield was unusual. But considering the issues at stake, and how bitterly divisive those issues were, Lincoln was convinced that anything he said would simply be twisted by both Democratic factions for their own purposes. And besides, Lincoln pointed out, His views on those issues were already widely circulated, mainly through the transcripts of his debates with Stephen Douglas, and also through the text of his Cooper Union speech. In those forms, his views were readily available to anyone who cared to take the time to seek them out. Beyond that, the Republican Party platform was also in wide circulation. And so, throughout the summer and fall of 1860, Abraham Lincoln remained at home in Springfield, declining to make speeches, and even cautious about posting letters that discussed the issues concerning the country. Stephen Douglas, on the other hand, made a decision that shattered precedent. He decided to campaign on his own behalf. Knowing what a stunning and controversial step he was taking, Douglas attempted to disguise what he was doing by announcing that he was simply taking a trip to visit his mother in New York, attend his brother-in-law's graduation at Harvard, and visit his father's grave in Vermont. The press, not fooled for an instant, was scathing in its reporting of the spectacle. As Douglas's train meandered through New England, with the candidate making speeches at each town and village along the way, the political cartoonist of the day relentlessly poked fun at the little lost boy searching for his mother. In the end, Douglas's break with precedent and attempt to excite the voters probably did little more than exhaust him and ruin his health. We'll return to Stephen Douglas again, probably in the next episode, but we'll leave him there for now. One of the other aspects of the campaign that we wanted to mention was the wide awakes. As the excitement and optimism of the Republican convention carried over into the campaign, the young party found enthusiastic support among young people throughout the North. Many thousands of young people enrolled in so-called wide-awake clubs that paraded through the streets of towns and cities, marching with torches and carrying fence rails. The fence rails became a symbol of the Republican campaign, emphasizing the humble origins of Honest Abe, the rail splitter. Exactly. And as far as the wide-awake clubs, they apparently sprang up after Lincoln's visit to New York City. Supposedly there was an occasion when some young Republicans had braved inclement weather to parade and support Lincoln, and that night, in the bad weather, they wore oilcloth capes and carried torches, and the image stuck. 
Northern college students in particular, tired of the North being bullied by the South and, well, just being college students, they enjoyed the fact that below the Mason-Dixon line, the Wide Awake clubs were portrayed as militant Republican fanatics who would invade the South with fire and sword. And indeed, especially in New England, the enthusiastic young Republicans wore their black capes and shiny hats just as they would a uniform, and they carried their torches in nighttime parades just as they would shoulder muskets. And so, truth be told, it was all to demonstrate their willingness to fight for party and country. So the Wide Awakes were actually a pretty interesting part of the 1860 presidential campaign. The other thing we wanted to mention about the campaign, especially since the Democrats will use it again in 1864, but in 1860, both factions of the Democratic Party unapologetically played the race card against the Republicans. Northern Democrats insisted that if Lincoln were victorious, hundreds of thousands of runaway slaves would turn up in the free states, where they would compete for jobs with northern workers and marry white women. And in Alabama, a congressman warned his constituents that if the Republicans won in November, an army of abolitionists would march on the South just after the election and force the daughters of poor white farmers to marry black men. In the Deep South, where Lincoln, for all intents and purposes, wasn't even on the ballot, such absurd, racially charged allegations weren't actually aimed at the Republicans, obviously, but were instead designed to prepare those white farmers for secession immediately after the election. Well, all right, there's more that we could pass along in that line, but it's pretty distasteful, and we'll have to cover it again with the Democrats in 1864. So, for now, we'll just move along. And so, in 1860, with the Democrats splintered into three factions, none of them, not Stephen Douglas, John C. Breckinridge, or John Bell, none of them really had any realistic hope of defeating the Republicans. They did have a slim hope that Lincoln might be weakened sufficiently to deny him an electoral majority, which would throw the choice of the next president into the House of Representatives, where each state would then have one vote and anything could happen. Of course, none of that occurred, but with the unusual four-way contest, people at the time were thinking about it. All right, so let's cut right to the chase, the election results. None of you will be surprised when we tell you that Abraham Lincoln was the victor in the presidential election on November 6, 1860. It's interesting that Lincoln won just under 40% of the popular vote. In fact, he polled almost a million votes less than the combined popular votes of his three opponents. But even seen in that light, with less than a majority of popular votes, Lincoln still captured a decisive 180 electoral votes, 27 more than he needed to win. In fact, by sweeping the more populous North, except for New Jersey, Lincoln would have still collected enough electoral votes to win even if the South had united entirely behind one candidate. But even though he won with less than a majority of the popular vote, we should still point out that Abraham Lincoln, thanks to the rapidly growing population of the nation and a heavy voter turnout at the polls, Lincoln still had more popular votes than any man who had ever run for president. 1.86 million in all, or 28,000 more votes than Democrat James Buchanan had earned in winning the presidency four years earlier. And just another little historical factoid, 
With a shade under 40% of the total votes cast, Lincoln's stake of the popular vote is second only to John Quincy Adams as the smallest share ever collected by a victor in a presidential election. In nine southern states, not a single voter requested a Republican ballot. Let me say that again. In nine southern states, Abraham Lincoln won not a single vote. Lincoln's name was allowed to appear on the ballot in five slave states, all in the Upper South, but in those five slave states, he earned only 26,000 votes. And most of those came from a single state, Missouri, where anti-slavery German Americans in St. Louis voted strongly Republican. As for the three other candidates, John C. Breckinridge won 11 states, from Maryland and Delaware to Texas in the Southwest. His electoral vote of 72 put him in second place in what was greater than the combined electoral count of Bell and Douglas, but he was third in percentage of popular vote. Most of the Upper South stood behind Bell, who carried Virginia, Tennessee, and Kentucky for a total of 38 electoral votes, but his popular vote count placed him in fourth place in percent of ballots cast. And then Stephen Douglas ran second in the popular vote, but captured only 12 electoral votes. The only state he carried outright was Missouri. Testifying to the deep sectional rift between North and South, if the election is analyzed geographically, the total result gave Lincoln a decisive 54% in the North and West, but only 2% in the South, which is the most lopsided vote in American history. A few months before the election, influential men in Charleston, South Carolina, anticipating a Republican victory in November, had organized an association to begin laying the groundwork for the state's secession from the Union. And now, in November, as the election results came in, Charleston's residents declared an informal holiday and joyously took to the streets. The state's palmetto flag was defiantly run up in place of the Stars and Stripes. The city's Mercury newspaper looked back to the Boston Tea Party and America's War for Independence when it declared, The tea has been thrown overboard. The Revolution of 1860 has been initiated. In celebration, fireworks burst over Charleston and lit up the walls of Fort Sumter out in the harbor. Robert Barnwell Rhett addressed a cheering crowd, shouting, quote, The long weary night of our humiliation, oppression and danger is passing away, and the glorious dawn of a Southern Confederacy breaks on our view. End quote. As for the president elect, in his biography of Lincoln, Ronald White says, quote, On a sunny election day morning, Tuesday, november sixth, eighteen sixty, Lincoln received visitors at his office in the State House. He had never voted for himself in an election and was not planning to do so today. William Herndon persuaded him that he could clip off the presidential electors at the top of the ballot and still cast his vote for the state offices. In the afternoon, Lincoln walked over to the courthouse to vote. Everywhere Lincoln went on this election day, people cheered and followed him. He went home for an early supper with Mary and the boys. He returned to the state house by seven where intermittently he received scattered and inconclusive reports of election results from across the country. At nine, Lincoln and a few others went to the telegraph office. With increasing rapidity, the tapping of the telegraph keys began to spell out Republican victories across the North. Lincoln had one remaining fear. If he did not win New York with its 35 electoral votes, he might not win a majority, and the election would be decided in the House of Representatives. 
Shortly after midnight, the results from New York signaled that Lincoln would be the 16th President of the United States. With victory assured, Lincoln walked over to Watson's confectionery, where Mary and other Republican women had prepared a victory supper. As he entered, the women greeted him, How do you do, Mr. President? After eating, he went back to the telegraph office and stayed until nearly two o'clock to monitor the results. End quote. When Abraham Lincoln finally departed the telegraph office, he stuffed the cable from New York into a pocket to keep as a souvenir and told everyone that it was about time he went home and told the news to a tired woman who was waiting up for him. But when Abraham Lincoln arrived home, he found that Mary was not waiting up for him, but was instead fast asleep. Gently touching his wife's shoulder, he whispered her name, but she remained asleep. Then, as Lincoln later said, I spoke again, a little louder, saying, Mary, Mary, we are elected. Just before that, as Abraham Lincoln had left the telegraph office and went out into the night to make his way home, the final words his companions heard him utter were, God help me, God help me. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is Year of Meteors, Stephen Douglas, Abraham Lincoln, and the Election That Brought on the Civil War by Douglas Edgerton. The book list review of Year of Meteors calls it provocative and well-argued. The review goes on to say, Perhaps, as William Seward asserted in 1858, differences between the North and South were leading to an irrepressible conflict. But the outbreak of the Civil War in April 1861 was not inevitable. Edgerton credibly asserts that the reason strains evolved into full-scale hostilities was the result of actions by a relatively few men. Edgerton views the election of Lincoln, which seemed inconceivable at the beginning of 1860, as the trigger for secession. He suggests that to some extent the election was the result of what amounted to a conspiracy on the part of Southern radicals. Northerners, including Lincoln and Stephen Douglas, played their parts. Douglas is seen as a particularly tragic character. The little giant was brilliant, a devoted Union man, but indifferent to the evils of slavery. His efforts to dance around the issue pleased neither Northerners nor Southerners. But it was hardline Southerners who determined to split the Democratic Party while painting Lincoln as an abolitionist, furthering their goal of secession and establishment of a slaveholding republic. All right, as always, you can find all of our book recommendations at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.blogspot.com. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. In our next episode, we'll watch as the nation begins to break apart as southern states start to secede from the Union even before Abraham Lincoln takes office. We hope you'll join us again next time. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.